Chapter 16, Parts 8 and 9 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 16, Parts 8 and 9. Section 8, Battle of Chaeronea. Philip had no longer the slightest prospect of realising the hope, which he had cherished both before and after the peace of Philocrates, of establishing friendly relations with Athens. The influence of the irreconcilable orator was now triumphant. Through the persistent agitation of Demosthenes, coldness and quarrelling had issued in war and Macedonia had received a distinct check. There was nothing for it now but to accept the war and bring the Macedonian cavalry into play. There were two points where Athens could be attacked effectively, at the gates of her own city and at the gates of her granary in the Euxini. But a land power like Macedonia could not operate effectively in the Propontis, unless aided by allies which possessed an effective navy, and Philip had experienced the truth of this when he laid siege to Perinthus and Byzantium, and in that quarter he had now to reckon not only with the Athenian sea power, but with the small navies of the Asiatic islands, Rhodes, Kos, and Chios, which had recently come to the rescue of the menaced cities. For these island states calculated that, if Philip won control of the passage between the two continents, he would not only tax their trade, but would soon cross over to the conquest of Asia Minor, and their fleets would then be appropriated to form the nucleus of a Macedonian navy. Now that Athens had been awakened from her slumbers, it was abundantly evident that the only place where Macedonia could inflict upon her a decisive blow was Attica. On her side, Athens had lightly engaged in a war, for which she had not either fully counted the cost or meditated an adequate programme. In truth, the Athenians had no craving for the war, and they were not driven to it by imperious necessity, or urged by an irresistible instinct, or persuaded by a rational conviction of its expediency. The persistent and crafty agitation of Demosthenes and his party had drawn them on step by step. Their natural feeling of irritation at the rise of a new great power in the north had been sedulously fed and fostered by that eloquent orator and his friends, till it had grown into an unreasoning hatred of the Macedonian king, whose character, aims, and resources were totally misrepresented. But now that war was declared, what was to be the plan of action? Athens had not even an able general who could make an effective combination. She controlled the sea, and it was something that Euboea had shaken off the Macedonian influence. In Chalcis, Athens had a point of vantage against Boeotia, and from Aureus she could raise the Thessalian coast and operate in the Bay of Pagasae. But when Philip advanced southward and passed Thermopylae, which was in his hands, the Athenian superiority at sea was of no use, for his communications were independent of the sea. There was no means of offering serious opposition if he marched on Attica, and the citizens were hardly likely at the bidding of Demosthenes to ascend their ships as they had done at the bidding of Themistocles. If events fell out according to the only probable forecast which could be made, on the assumption of Demosthenes that the invasion of Attica and the ruin of Athens were the supreme objects of Philip, the Athenians had to look forward to the devastation of their country and the siege of their city. How was this peril to be met? 
They were practically isolated, for they had no strong continental power to support them. What could Megarians or Corinthians, Ambraciots or Achaeans do for them against the host of Philip and his allies? Ah, if we were only islanders, many an Athenian must have murmured in these critical years. It was the calamity of Athens, as it had been the calamity of Holland, that she was solidly attached to the continent. Now that the crisis approaches nearer, it is borne in upon us more and more how improvident the policy of Athens had been. If she had accepted Macedonian friendship and kept a strong naval force permanently in the Propontis, assuring herself of undisputed control of her own element, she would have been perfectly safe. The constant presence of a powerful fleet belonging to a predominant naval state may be in itself a strategic success equivalent to a series of victories. But though we have almost no notices of the movements of the Athenian galleys at this time, we cannot help suspecting that the naval power of Athens was inefficiently handled. Demosthenes had never had a free hand until the siege of Byzantium. Till then he could do little more than agitate. When at length he became, in the full sense of the word, the director of Athenian policy, his energy and skill were amazing. But we cannot help asking with what hopes he was prepared to undertake the responsibility of bringing an invader into his country and a besieger to the walls of his city. The answer is that he rested his hope on a single chance. From the beginning of his public career, Demosthenes had a strong leaning to Thebes, and it had been already mentioned that he was Theban Proxenos at Athens. This was a predilection which it behoved him to be very careful of airing, for the general feeling in his city was unfriendly to Thebes. The rhetorical tears which Demosthenes shed over the fate of the Phocians were not inconsistent with his attachment to the enemies of Phocis, for he never raised his voice for the victims of Theban hatred until their doom was accomplished. The aim of his policy was to unite Athens in alliance with Thebes. It was a difficult and doubtful game. Could Thebes be induced to turn against her Macedonian ally, who had recently secured for her the full supremacy of Boeotia, and who, she might reasonably reckon, would continue to support her as an useful neighbour to Attica? On this chance, and a poor chance it seemed, rested the desperate policy of Demosthenes. If Thebes joined Philip, or even gave him a free passage through Boeotia, the fate of Attica was sealed. But if she could be brought to desert him, her well-trained troops, joined with those of Athens, might successfully oppose his invasion. The invasion was not long delayed, and it came about in a curious way. During the recent sacred war, the Athenians had burnished anew and set up again in the sanctuary of Delphi the donative which they had dedicated after the victory of Plataea, being gold shields with the inscription, from the spoils of Persians and Thebans who fought together against the Greeks. Such a rededication, while Delphi was in the hands of the Phocians, who had been condemned as sacrilegious robbers, might be regarded as an offence against religion. At all events, the Thebans and their friends had an excellent pretext to revenge themselves on Athens for that most offensive inscription, which had perpetrated the shame of Thebes for a century and a half. The Thebans themselves did not come forward, but their friends of the Locrian Amphissa arranged to accuse the Athenians at the autumn session of the Amphictyonic Council and propose a fine of fifty talents. At this session, Ashinis was one of the Athenian deputies, and he discovered the movement which was afoot against his city. He was an able man, and he forestalled the blow by dealing another. The men who had been incited to charge Athens with sacrilege had been themselves guilty of a sacrilege far more enormous. They had cultivated part of the accursed field which had once been the land of Crisa. 
Ascinius arose in the assembly, and in an impressive and convincing speech which carried his audience with him, called upon the Apfictions to punish the men who had wrought this impious act. On the morrow, at the break of day, the Amphictyons and the Delphians, armed with pickaxes, marched down the hill to lay waste the places which had been unlawfully cultivated, and as they did so, were assaulted by the Amphictyons, whose city is visible from the plain. The council then resolved to hold a special meeting at Thermopylae, in order to consult on measures for the punishment of the Locrians, who, to their former crime, had added the offence of violating the persons of the Amphictyonic deputies. By his promptness and eloquence the Athenian orator had secured a great triumph. He had completely turned the tables on the enemies, Amphissa and Thebes, who must have been prepared to declare an Amphictyonic war against Athens, in case she declined, as she certainly would have done, to pay the fine. They calculated, of course, on the support of Philip of Macedon. But it was now for Athens to take the lead in a sacred war against Amphissa, and it was a favourable opportunity for her to make peace with Philip, so that the combination should be Philip and Athens against Thebes, instead of Philip and Thebes against Athens. It was not to be expected that this advantage which Aeschines had gained would be welcome to Demosthenes, for it was the object of Demosthenes to avoid an embroilment with Thebes. Accordingly he persuaded the people to send no deputies to the special Amphictyonic meeting, and take no part in the proceedings against Amphissa. He upbraided Aeschines with trying to bring an Amphictyonic war into Attica, a strange taunt to the man who had prevented the declaration of an Amphictyonic war against Athens. Thus, although the attack upon Athens must have been prepared at Theban instigation, the incident was converted, through the policy of Demosthenes, into a means of bringing Athens and Thebes closer together. Athens and Thebes alike abstained from attending the special meeting. The Amphictyons, in accordance with the decisions of that meeting, marched against the Amphissians, but were not strong enough to impose the penalties which had been decreed. Accordingly, at the next autumn session, they determined to invite Philip to come down once more to be leader in a sacred war. Philip did not delay a moment. An Amphictyonic war, from which both Athens and Thebes held aloof, was a matter which needed prompt attention. When he reached Thermopylae, he probably sent on, by the mountain road which passes through Doris to Amphissa, a small force to occupy Citinion, the chief town on that road. Advancing himself through the defile of Thermopylae into northern Phocis, he seized and refortified the dismantled city of Elatea. The purpose of this action was to protect himself in the rear against Boeotia, and preserve his communications with Thermopylae while he was operating against Amphissa. But while he halted at Elatea, he sent ambassadors to explore the intentions of Thebes. He declared that he intended to invade Attica, and called upon the Thebans to join him in the invasion, or, if they would not do this, to give his army a free passage through Boeotia. This was a diplomatic method of forcing Thebes to declare herself. It does not prove that Philip had any serious intention of marching against Attica, and his later conduct seems to show that he did not contemplate such a step. But in Athens, when the news came that the Macedonian army was at Elatea, the folk fell into extreme panic and alarm. It would seem that Philip's rapid movements had brought him into central Greece far sooner than was expected, and the news of his arrival, which must have been transmitted by way of Thebes, was accompanied by the rumour that he was about to march on Athens. And thus the Athenians in their fright connected the seizure of Elatea with the supposed design against themselves, although Elatea had no closer connection than the pass of Thermopylae with an attack on Athens. 
for a night and a day the city was filled with consternation, and these anxious hours have been famous in history through the genius of the orator Demosthenes, who in later years recalled to the people the scene and their own emotions by a picturesque description which no orator has surpassed. On the advice of Demosthenes, the Athenians dispatched ten envoys to Thebes. Everything depended upon detaching Thebes from the Macedonian alliance, and it seemed at least possible that this might be effected. For though there were probably few in Thebes who were inclined to be friendly to Athens, there was a party of some weight which was distinctly hostile to Macedonia. Moreover, there was a feeling of soreness against Philip for having seized Nicaea, close to Thermopylae, and replaced its Theban garrison by Thessalians. The envoys, of whom Demosthenes was one, were instructed to make concessions and exact none. The ambassadors of Athens and Macedon met in the Boeotian capital, and their messages were heard in turn by the Theban assembly. It would be too much to say that the fate of Greece depended on the deliberations of this assembly, but it is the mere truth that the Theban vote not only decided the doom of Thebes itself, but determined the shape of the great event to which Greece had been irresistibly moving. In considering the situation which the rise of Macedon had created, we have hitherto stood in Pella or in Athens. We must now for a moment take our point of view at Thebes. The inveterate rivalry and ever-smouldering hate which existed between Thebes and Athens was a strong motive inducing Thebes to embrace an opportunity for rendering Athens harmless. But it would require no great foresight to see that, by weakening her old rival, Thebes would gravely endanger her own position. So long as Philip had a strong Athens to reckon with, it behoved him to treat Thebes with respect, but if Athens were reduced to nothingness, Thebes would be absolutely in his power, and probably his first step would be to free the cities of Boeotia from her domination. To put it shortly, the independent attitude which Thebes had hitherto been able to maintain towards her friend Macedonia depended on the integrity of Athens. Thus the positions of Thebes and Athens were remarkably different. While Athens could with impunity stand alone as Philip's enemy, when Thebes was Philip's friend, Thebes could not safely be Philip's friend unless Athens were his enemy. The reason for this difference was that Athens was a sea power. To a Theban statesman, then, possessing any foresight, the subjugation of Athens would have been feared as the prelude to the depression of Thebes, and it would have seemed wiser to join in a common resistance to Philip. This sound reasoning was quickened by the eloquence of Demosthenes and the offers of Athens. The Athenians were ready to pay two-thirds of the expenses of the war. They abandoned their claim to Oropus, and they recognized the Boeotian dominion of Thebes, a dominion which they had always condemned before as an outrage on the rights of free communities. But professing now, through the mouth of Demosthenes, to be the champion of Hellenic liberty, Athens scrupled little to sacrifice the liberties of a few Boeotian cities. By these concessions she secured the alliance of Thebes, and Demosthenes won the greatest diplomatic success that he had yet achieved, the consummation to which his policy had been directed for many years. The first concern of Philip was to do the work which the Amphictyons had summoned him to perform, but that he is completely lost to our sight in this campaign. We only know that the Allies followed him into focus and gained some advantages in two engagements, but that he ultimately captured not only Amphissa, cutting up a force of mercenaries that Athens had sent his, that Athens had sent thither, but also Norpactus, thus gaining a point of vantage against the Peloponnesus. He then turned back to carry the war into Boeotia, and when he entered the great western gate of that country close to Chaeronea, he found the army of the allies guarding the way to Thebes, and prepared to give him battle. 
he had thirty thousand foot soldiers and two thousand horse, perhaps slightly outnumbering his foes. Their line extended over about three and a half miles, the left wing resting on Chaeronea, and the right on the river Cephesus. The Theban hoplites, with the sacred band in front, under the command of Theagones, did not occupy the left wing, as when Epaminondas led them to victory at Leuctra and at Mantinea, but were assigned the right, which was esteemed the post of honour. In the centre were ranged the troops of the lesser allies, Achaeans, Corinthians, Phocians, and others, whom Demosthenes boasted of having rallied to the cause of Hellenic liberty. On the left stood the Athenians under three generals, Cares, Lysicles, and Stratocles, of whom Cares was a respectable soldier with considerable experience and no talent, while the other two were incompetent. Demosthenes himself was serving as a hoplite in the ranks. Of the battle we know less perhaps than of any other equally important engagement in the history of Greece, but we can form a general notion of the tactics of Philip. The most formidable part of the adverse array was the Theban infantry, and accordingly he posted on his own left wing the phalanx, with its more open order and long pikes, to try its strength against the most efficient of the old-fashioned hoplites of Greece. On the flank of this wing he placed his heavy cavalry, to ride down upon the Thebans when the phalanx had worn them out. The cavalry was commanded by Alexander, now a lad of eighteen, and, many hundred years after, the oak of Alexander was shown on the bank of the river. The right wing was comparatively weak, and Philip planned that it should gradually give way before the attack of the Athenians and draw them on, so as to divide them from their allies. This plan of holding back the right wing reminds us of the tactics of Epaminondas, but the use of cavalry to decide the combat is the characteristic feature of Philip's battles. The Athenians pressed forward, fondly fancying that they were pressing to victory, and Stratocles, in the flush of success, cried, On to Macedonia! But in the meantime the Thebans had been broken by Alexander's horsemen. Their leader had fallen, and the comrades of the sacred Lochos were making a last hopeless stand. Philip could now spare some of his Macedonian footmen, and he moved them so as to take the Athenians in flank and rear. Against the assault of these trained troops the Athenians were helpless. One thousand were slain, two thousand captured, and the rest ran, Demosthenes running with the fleetest. But the sacred band did not flee. They fought till they fell, and it is their heroism which has won for the Battle of Chaeronea its glory as a struggle for liberty. When the traveller, journeying on the highway from Phocis to Thebes, has passed the town of Chaeronea, he sees at the roadside the tomb where those heroes were laid, and the fragments of the lion which was set up to keep a long ward over their bones. An epitaph which was composed in honour of the Athenian dead suggests the consolation that God alone is sure of success. Men must be prepared to fail. It is true, but in this case the failure cannot be imputed to the chances of war. When the Allies opened the campaign the outlook was not hopeless. If they had been led by a competent general, they might have reduced the Macedonian army to serious straits amid the valleys of Phocis and the hills of Locris. But to oppose to a Philip, the best they had was a Ceres. The war was really decided in Locris by the strategical inferiority of the Athenian and Theban generals, and the inevitable sequel of the blunders. There was the catastrophe in Boeotia. The advantage in numerical strength with which the Allies started had been lost and when they stood face to face with the advancing foe at Chaeronea, all the chances were adverse to any issue save defeat, in a battle in the open against a general of such preeminent ability. 
men must be prepared to fail when they have no competent leader. If the chances of another issue to the Battle of Kiranir have been exaggerated, the significance of that event has been often misrepresented. The Battle of Kiranir belongs to the same historical series as the battles of Aegosopotami and Leuctra. As the hegemony or first place among Greek states had been passed successively from Athens to Sparta and to Thebes, so now it passed to Macedon. The statement that Greek liberty perished on the plain of Chaonea is as true or as false as that it perished on the field of Leuctra or the strand of the Goat's River. Whenever a Greek state became supreme, that supremacy entailed the depression of some states and the dependency or subjection of others. Athens was reduced to a secondary place by Macedon, and Thebes fared still worse. But we must not forget what Sparta, in the day of her triumph, did to Athens, or the more evil things which Thebes proposed. There were, however, in the case of Macedonia, special circumstances which seemed to give her victory a more fatal character than those previous victories which had initiated new supremacies. For Macedon was regarded in Hellas as an outsider, this was a feeling which the southern Greeks entertained even in regard to Thessaly when Jason threatened them with a Thessalian hegemony, and Macedonia, politically and historically as well as geographically, was some steps further away than Thessaly. If Thessaly was hardly inside the inner circle of Hellenic politics, Macedonia was distinctly outside it. To Athens and Sparta, to Corinth and Argos and Thebes, the old powers, who, as we might say, had known each other all their lives as foes or friends, and had a common international history, the supremacy of Macedonia seemed the intrusion of an upstart. And in second place, this supremacy was the triumph of an absolute monarchy over free commonwealths, so that the submission of the Greek states to Macedon's king might be rhetorically branded as an enslavement to a tyrant, in a sense in which the subjection to a sovereign Athens or a sovereign Sparta could not be so described. For these reasons, the tidings of Chaeronea sent a new kind of thrill through Greece, and the impression that there was something unique in Philip's victory might be said to have been confirmed by subsequent history, which showed that the old Greek commonwealths had had their day and might never again rise to be first-rate powers. Section 9. The Synedrion of the Greeks. Philip's Death. Isocrates just lived to hear the tidings of Chaeronea and died consoled for the fate of his fallen fellow-citizens by the thought that the unity of Hellas was now assured. But a Greek unity, such as he dreamed of, was by no means assured. The hegemony of Macedonia did as little to unite the Greek states or abolish the separatist tendency as the hegemony of Athens or of Sparta. But we must see how Philip used his victory. He treated Thebes just as Sparta had treated it when Phobidas surprised the citadel. He punished by death or confiscation his leading opponents. He established a Macedonian garrison in the Cadmea, and broke up the Boeotian League, giving all the cities their independence and restoring the dismantled towns of Orchomenus and Plataea. But if his dealings with Thebes did not go beyond the usual dealing of one Greek state with its vanquished rival, his dealing with Athens was unusually lenient. The truth was that Athens did not lie defenceless at his feet. He might invade and ravage Attica, but when he came to invest Athens and Piraeus, he might find himself confronted by a task more arduous than that which had thwarted him at Perinthus and Byzantium. The sea power of Athens saved her, and not less, perhaps, the respect which Philip always felt for her intellectual eminence. Now at last, by unexpected leniency, 
he might win what he had always striven for, the moral and material support of Athens. And in Athens men were now ready to listen to the voices which were raised for peace. The policy of Demosthenes had failed, and all desired to recover the two thousand captives and avert an invasion of the Attic soil. There was little disposition to hearken to the advice of Hyperides, who proposed to enfranchise and arm one hundred and fifty thousand slaves. Among the captives was an orator of consummate talent, named Demades, who belonged to the peace party, and saw that the supremacy of Macedon was inevitable. An anecdote was noised about that Philip, who spent the night after the battle in wild revelry, came reeling drunk to the place where his prisoners were, and jeered at their misfortune, making merry too over the flight of the great Demosthenes. But Demades stood forth and ventured to rebuke him. O king, fortune has given you the role of Agamemnon, and you play the part of Thersites. The words stung and sobered the drunken victor. He flung away his garlands and all the gear of his revel, and set the bold speaker free. But whether this story be true or not, Demades was politically sympathetic with Philip, and was sent by him to negotiate peace at Athens. Philip offered to restore all the prisoners without ransom, and not to march into Attica. The Athenians on their side were to dissolve what remained of their confederacy, and join the new Hellenic Union which Philip proposed to organize. In regard to territory, Oropus was to be given to Athens, but the Chersonesus was to be surrendered to Macedonia. On these terms peace was concluded, and the Athenian people thought that they had come off well. Philip sent his son and two of his chief officers to Athens, with the bodies of the Athenians who had been slain. They were received with great honour, and a statue of the Macedonian king was set up in the marketplace, a token of gratitude which was probably genuine. Demosthenes himself afterwards confessed with a snarl that Philip had been kind. It was now necessary for Macedonia to win the recognition of her supremacy from the Peloponnesian states. Philip marched himself into Peloponnesus, and met with no resistance. Sparta alone refused to submit, and the conqueror bore down upon her, with the purpose of forcing on her a reform of the constitution and the abolition of her peculiar kingship, which seemed to him like a relic of the Dark Ages. But something mysterious happened which induced him to desist from his purpose, and a poet of Epidaurus, who was at that time a boy, told in later years how the god Asclepius had intervened to save the Spartan state. What time King Philip unto Sparta came, bent on abolishing the royal name. But Sparta, though her kings were saved, had to suffer at the hands of Philip what she had before suffered at the hands of Epaminondas, the devastation of Laconia and the diminution of her territory. The frontier districts on the three sides were given to her neighbours, Argos, Tegea, Megalopolis and Messenia. Having thus displayed his arms and power in the south, the Macedonian king invited all the Greek states within Thermopylae to send delegates to a congress at Corinth, and, with the sole exception of Sparta, all the states obeyed. It was a federal congress, the first assembly of an Hellenic confederacy, of which the place of meeting was to be Corinth and Macedonia the head. The aim of the confederacy was understood from the first, but it would seem that it was not till the second meeting a year later that Philip announced his resolve to make war upon Persia, in behalf of Greece and her gods, to liberate the Greek cities of Asia, and to punish the barbarians for the acts of sacrilege which their forefathers had wrought in the days of Xerxes. 
It was the formal announcement that a new act in the eternal struggle between Europe and Asia was about to begin, and Europe, having found a leader, might now have her revenge for many a deed of insolence. The federal gathering voted for the war and elected Philip General with supreme powers. It was arranged what contingents in men or ships each city should contribute to the Panhellenic army. The Athenians undertook to send a considerable fleet. The league which was thus organized under the hegemony of Macedon had the advantage of placing before its members a definite object to be accomplished, and it might be thought a common interest. But if Themistocles found it hard to unite the Greek states by a common fear, it was harder still for Philip to unite them by a common hope and the idea which Macedon promulgated produced no Panhellenic effort, and awakened but small enthusiasm. Yet the Congress of Corinth has its significance. It is the counterpart of that earlier Congress which met at the Isthmus, when Greece was trembling at the thought of the barbarian host which was rolling towards her from the east. She had so long ceased to tremble that she had almost forgotten to remember before the day of vengeance came. But with the revolution of fortune's wheel, that day came duly round, and Greece met once more on the Isthmus to concert how her ancient tremors might be amply avenged. The new league did not unite the Greeks in the sense which Isocrates had hoped for their union. There was a common dependency on Macedon, but there was no zeal for the aims of the northern power, no faith in her as the guide and leader of Greece. Each state went its own private way, and the interests of the Greek communities remained as isolated and particular as ever. A league of such members could not be held together. The peace which the league stipulated could not be maintained without some military stations in the midst of the country. And Philip established three Macedonian garrisons at important points. At Ambracia to watch the west, at Corinth to hold the Peloponnesus in check, and at Chalcis to control northeastern Greece. The designs of Philip probably did not extend beyond the conquest of Western Asia Minor but it was not fated that he should achieve this himself. In the spring after the Congress, his preparations for war were nearly complete, and he sent forward an advance force under Parmenio and other generals to secure the passage of the Hellespont and win a footing in the Troad and Bithynia. The rest of the army was soon to follow under his own command. But Philip, as a frank Corinthian friend told him, had filled his own house with division and bitterness. A Macedonian king was not expected to be faithful to his wife, but the proud and stormy princess whom he had wedded was impatient of his open infidelities. Nor was her own virtue deemed above suspicion, and it was even whispered that Alexander was not Philip's son. The crisis came when Philip fell in love with a Macedonian maiden of too high a station to become his concubine, Cleopatra, the niece of his general Attalus. Yielding to his passion, he put Olympias away and celebrated his second marriage. At the wedding feast, Attalus, bold with wine, invited the nobles to pray the gods for a legitimate heir to the throne. Alexander flung his drinking cup in the face of the man who had insulted his mother, and Philip started up, drawing his sword to transpierce his son. But he reeled and fell, and Alexander jeered, Behold the man who would pass from Europe to Asia! and trips in passing from couch to couch. Pella was no longer the place for Alexander. He took the divorced queen to Epirus, and withdrew himself to the hills of Lynchestis, until Philip invited him to return. But the restless intrigues of the injured mother soon created new debates, and when a son was born to Cleopatra, 
it was easy to arouse the fears of Alexander that his own succession to the throne was imperiled. Philip's most urgent desire was to avoid a breach with the powerful king of Epirus, the brother of the injured woman. To this end he offered him his daughter in wedlock, and the marriage was to be celebrated with great pomp in Pella, on the eve of Philip's departure for Asia. But it was decreed that he should not depart. Olympias was made of the stuff which does not hesitate at crime, and a tool was easily found to avenge the wrongs of the wife and assure the succession of the son. A certain Pausanias, an obscure man of no merit, had been grossly wronged by Italus, and was madly incensed against the king, who refused to do him justice. On the wedding day, as Philip, in solemn procession, entered the theatre a little in advance of his guards, Pausanias rushed forward with a Celtic dagger and laid him a corpse at the gate. The assassin was caught and killed, but the true assassin was Olympias, and it was Alexander who reaped the fruits of the crime. Willingly would we believe that he knew nothing of the plot, and that a man of such a generous nature never stooped to thoughts of parricide. Beyond dark whispers there is no evidence against him, yet it would be rash to say his innocence is certain. To none of the world's greatest rulers has history done less justice than to Philip. The failure in appreciation has been due to two or perhaps three causes. The overwhelming greatness of a son greater than himself has overshadowed him and drawn men's eyes to achievements which could never have been wrought but for Philip's lifetime of toil. In the second place, we depend for our knowledge of Philip's work almost entirely on the Athenian orators, and especially on Demosthenes, whose main object was to misrepresent the king. And we may add, thirdly, that we possess no account of one of the greatest and most difficult of his exploits, the conquest of Thrace. Thus through chance, through the malignant eloquence of his opponent, who has held the ears of posterity, and through the very results of his own deeds, the maker and expander of Macedonia, the conqueror of Thrace and Greece, has hardly held his due place in the history of the world. The importance of his work cannot be fully understood until the consequences which it devolved upon his son to carry out have been studied. The work of Alexander is the most authentic testimony to the work of Philip. But there was one notable man of the day whose imagination grasped the ecumenical importance of the king of Macedon. A pupil of Isocrates, Theopompus of Chios, who played some part in the politics of his own island, was inspired by the deeds of Philip to write a history of his own time, with Philip as its central figure. In that elaborate work, the loss of which is irreparable, Theopompus exposed candidly and impartially the king's weaknesses and misdeeds, but he declared his judgment that Europe had never produced as great a man as the son of Amyntas. It is part of the injustice to Philip that the history of Greece during his reign has so often been treated as little more than a biography of Demosthenes. Only his political opponents would deny that Demosthenes was the most eloquent of orators and the most patriotic of citizens. But that oratory in which he excelled was one of the curses of Greek politics. The art of persuasive speech is indispensable in a free commonwealth, and, when it is wielded by a statesman or a general, a Pericles, a Cleon, or a Xenophon, is a noble as well as useful instrument. But once it ceases to be a merely auxiliary art, it becomes dangerous and hurtful. This is what had happened at Athens. Rhetoric had been carried to such perfection that the best years of a man's youth were absorbed in learning it, and when he entered upon public life he was a finished speaker but a poor politician. Briefly, orators took the place of statesmen, and Demosthenes was the most eminent of the class. They could all formulate striking phrases of profound political wisdom, 
but their school-taught law did not carry them far against the craft of the Macedonian statesmen. The men of mighty words were as children in the hands of the man of mighty deeds. The Athenians took pleasure in hearing and criticizing the elaborate speeches of their orators, and the eloquence of Demosthenes, though it was thoroughly appreciated, imposed far less on such connoisseurs than it has imposed upon posterity. The common sense of a plain man could easily expose his sophistries. He said himself that the blunt phocion was the chopper of his periods. Demosthenes used his brilliant speech in the service of his country. He used it unscrupulously according to his light, the light of purblind patriotism. He could take a lofty tone. He professed to regard Philip as a barbarian threatening Hellas and her gods. There is no need to show that, judged from the point of view of the history of the world, his policy was retrograde and retarding. We cannot fairly criticize him either for not having seen, even as fully as Isocrates, that the day for the expansion of Greece had come, and that no existing Greek commonwealth was competent to conduct that expansion, or if he did vaguely see it, for having looked the other way. All he saw, or at least all he cared, was that the increase of Macedonia meant the curtailment of Athens, and his political life was one long agitation against Macedonia's restless advance but it was nothing more than a busy and often brilliant agitation, carried on from day to day and from month to month without any comprehensive plan. A fervent patriot does not make a great statesman. Demosthenes could devise reforms in special departments of the administration. He could admonish his fellow citizens to be up and doing, but he did not grapple seriously with any of the new problems of his day. He did not originate one fertile political idea. A statesman of genius might conceivably have infused fresh life into Athens by effecting some radical change in her constitution and finding for her a new part to play. The fact that no such statesman arose is perhaps merely another side of the fact that her part as a chief actor was over. It has often been said that the Demosthenic Athenians were irreclaimable. They certainly could not have been reclaimed by Demosthenes. For Demosthenes, when all is said, was a typical Demosthenic Athenian. End of chapter 16, parts 8 and 9.